in a scholarly field dominated by research in and about the global north. How can we foster south-to-south comparisons? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Juan Llamas Rodríguez in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Bochkowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Facundo Suenzo, a doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx and Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Estas son nuestras historias. Esas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am delighted to have with us today Juan Llamas Rodriguez. Juan is an assistant professor at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. Before going to Penn, he was an assistant professor in the School of Arts, Technology and Emerging Communication at the University of Texas at Dallas. He obtained his BA with honors in cinema and cinema studies and economics at the University of Toronto. Um, his MA in Film Studies at Concordia University, both in Canada. And in 2013, he started his PhD in Film and Media Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, which he finished in 2017. Juan is the author of a forthcoming, much anticipated uh, and much awaited uh, first monograph called Border Tunnels, a Media Theory of the U.S.-Mexico Underground, which University of Minnesota Press will publish in the fall, we are told, of this year. He also has a forthcoming edited collection uh, that is an advanced contract with uh, Amherst College Press called Media Travels towards an atlas of global media. He's the author of many articles and book chapters. Most recently, in 2023 already, he has a paper called Ruinous Speculation, Talent Environments and the Sustainable Infrastructures of the Border, published by Social Text. Juan, welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure to have you with us, Juan. So tell us, how did it all begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? It's, I would say it started kind of late. Um, although, as you just read, my, my, one of my majors in college was cinema studies. Um, I think I slowly started to move into the academic side of studying cinema and media very late um, in my progression through my degrees. Um, I think originally I wanted to be a film producer um, way back when I was in, um, I was growing up in high school in Mexico and wanted to study abroad. Um, first, I was really into international relations. So I tried that out for a year and then didn't realize that it wasn't really what I was mostly interested in. Um, I was interested in 
in cinema and films. Um, and so I did the cinema studies major and I was growing up, I still had that sense of like, well, you one needs to go to college in order to get a degree to like get a job, right? So I think for a while I was still working through the, um, what is this good for? Um, and what kind of job can you get after? And I think I applied to my master's in Montreal because I thought, you know, I could go into some related industry in films, whether that was like film festivals or like film distribution um, or something like that. And it was not till my first year in my master's. Um, I just remember it was a paper about the Spanish film Wreck, the horror film um, that I really enjoyed it. I really liked doing that paper. And then when I turned it in, uh, my professor who eventually became one of my master's mentors, Masha, Masha Salaskina, she wrote and she said, this is great. Um, have you thought about doing more of this writing um, in the future? And um, she was the first person that sort of like uh, got me thinking about um, pursuing a PhD and then pursuing the, the sort of um, academic career. And so I did. And it was still, I will say, up in the air until I um, got into a PhD program. Um, I think one of the big advice that I got in my master's, which now I always uh, impart to, to students, is there's no, to not do a PhD program unless it's fully funded, um, unless they're supporting you through it. And so um, once I did get some acceptances and they were funding me to go, I um, I was like, okay, we'll, we'll do this. And I think by then I started to see myself more in that role um, of um, pursuing both teaching at the college level, researching more full-time. And I think the four years that I'd spent at, at Santa Barbara were really formative and imagining myself in that world. Um, and, and the rest is history, I guess. <laughs> All right. So let's go back in time. You're at Concordia. You are embarking on a career as a doctoral student. Why Santa Barbara? Why that particular program? How was that process for you? Yeah. Um, why that program? I will say um, I owe a lot to my MA um, advisors on this. Um, I think I, like a lot of my colleagues at the time, when we were applying to PhD programs, our sense was, well, what are the big name programs that we know are like big cinema studies programs um, and apply to those. And those are the ones that we want to get into. I think one thing that they impressed on me um, was to think about the PhD program or the value of the PhD program, not only in like, what is the, the school that is going to be on your degree, but also what is the experience of that uh, program going to be like? So one of the reasons, a, a couple of my MA mentors were um, already new or were friends with people who were teaching at Santa Barbara at the time. Um, and one of the things that they spoke about the program very highly about is the kind of like commitment to mentorship, the fact that the faculty was very involved in the grad students work. Um, they were very supportive. And part of it was because at that time, the Santa Barbara PhD was relatively it wasn't new per se, but it was newer than a lot of very established PhD programs, right? That have been going on for decades um, and so forth. So I think part of that was a sense of, um, I'd be going to a place where um, I would have a lot of support of different kinds um, from all great people who are doing very different kinds of work. 
Um, and that was very appealing. Um, and uh, so I think that kind of changed my my thinking in that. It wasn't when I was applying, I was just, I applied to, I don't remember, um, seven or eight programs. And um, I was like, well, you know, these are my like top levels. But I think once I started visiting and I started hearing that idea of like, you know, what you really should be focused, once, you, once you're being fully funded, um, that should be the first sort of way to decide. But then once you have that, if you have the option of two fully funded programs, where are you going to be best supported um, throughout the entirety of your program. Um, and Santa Barbara offered that um, significantly um, for me. So I think that was, a, that was an, after that, it was an easy choice. Okay. And, and like you really like cold weather, I guess, you know, the, the, the weather change might have also influenced a little bit. Uh, Absolutely. Yes, yes. I mean, the idea of moving to Southern, well, Southern slash Central California um, was big in, in terms of all the programs that I was thinking about going. But so I was like, yes, this will be this will be a nice change of pace. Um, I have now gone done a full sort of U-turn and I'm back in the in the cold in, in Philadelphia, less cold in Montreal, but still cold. Um, but but it, yes, it also and now um after I've left, I've always said I think Santa Barbara is one of the Santa Barbara as a city is one of the best places to do a PhD because it's small because the weather is great and because the campus is next to the beach. So essentially all the things that line up so that if you want to spend four or five or six years reading, writing, talking through ideas, like what better place to do it than like next to the beach. And you can, uh, when you're thinking about ideas, you gaze out into the ocean and, you know, you let the eureka moment come from, from being in nature. Um, so that, that was, that was great. Yeah. Excellent. So you did your undergraduate and your first graduate degree in uh, Canada. Mm -hmm. um, so I do not know this, but um, uh, when you went to Santa Barbara, did you become then an international student in the U.S. or had you lived in the U.S. before? Well, no. So I first became an international student when I went to Canada. Um, right. Yeah. So I was born in Monterrey in Mexico, and then I grew up in Monterrey and then partly in Querétaro, which is near Mexico, near, near to Mexico City. Um, so I lived in Mexico up until my high school graduation um, and moved to Toronto for uh, for college. So I was an international student even in, in Toronto um, as well. Yeah. Huh. So all three degrees, I became very familiar with the bureaucracy of uh, visas and um, and so forth, and, which I think has shaped a lot of my interests in scholarly interests for sure. Um, it's also interestingly shaped, you know, my relationship to how I present my work and my interest in it, because I, um, like you, a lot of people assume that I was Canadian, or at least that I was like born in Mexico, but then moved to Canada because people tend, tend to do their first like um, higher ed degree in the country where they're already living, right? And then maybe pursue like a master's or a PhD uh, somewhere else. So I've, I've had that um, same question where a lot of people assume that um, I was already Canadian or already living in Canada before I did my uh, college in Toronto. And I did not, I moved straight from, from Mexico. Um, so when I moved to Santa Barbara, that was the first time I ever lived full-time in the U.S. I visited the U.S. a lot because we live near the U.S.-Mexico border, um, but that was the first sort of living in um, in the U.S. full-time. 
as an international student, for sure. Yeah. So how do you then compare now that you have two experiences in two different countries, right? As an international student. Yeah. How would you compare both? I mean, the two countries are not very dissimilar or less dissimilar than two other countries, say, I don't know, the US and any South American countries probably more dissimilar than, you know, the US and Canada, but still they're two different countries and they have differences in many respects. How was your experience being an international student um, and an international student from Mexico in uh, both of these countries? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I will say one of the advantages was um, that normally I'll refer to like the US Canada academia because I find that a lot of the norms um, and the way the programs are structured are very similar. So that makes it, that made it easier for me to do that transition. Um, I suppose, as you mentioned, other countries that have very different kind of ways they structure, you know, universities and programs and such. So that I found a lot of similarities, which is great. It made it seem that once I've sort of learned how that process works um, at Toronto and then Concordia, it made it easy to understand how um, things work in U.S. academia as well. There are significant differences. I mean, especially being um, from Mexico was very different. Um, being in Toronto, Montreal versus being in California um, in terms of just the already the Mexican uh, population that is there in terms of numbers. It's way less in Toronto and Montreal than it is in California for historical reasons. Um, Being an international student from Mexico in Toronto felt like I was one of multiple international students, right? Um, Whereas living in the southwestern U.S., you get a sense that, you know, this used to be Mexico, too. Um, and in how, you know, this, the cities were constituted in terms of, like, the use of Spanish uh, a lot more regularly, um, the availability of Mexican food, for sure. So that changed a lot in that in a legal sense, you're technically still an international student, but in the day-to-day interactions, those become very different. Um, so that was definitely a, a change. It's sense of like, in California, I could pass where people would just assume that maybe I was Mexican-American, right? Uh, or that I was like, you know, third generation uh, Mexican-American. Um, and in Canada, I could still, you know, constantly um, like come off as I am part of an international, of the international student body um, in that sense. Um, and at the same time, what that meant, whether you count as international student, whether you were perceived as um, a sort of ethnic minority within the, the, but still considered citizen, very different in Canada than it is considered in, uh, in the US, right? So the ideas about multiculturalism, that sort of Canadian identity carries with itself, and then, you know, um, all of that is very different than ideas about diversity in the US or lack thereof, right? The sense of um, Canadian, whether this is actually true or not on the ground, but at least in the day-to-day interactions, right? The sense of like Canada is multicultural and we all look very different and so forth versus a sort of Americanism that is about like, yes, anyone can be American, but here are the ways that you have to be in order to be American um, is very stark. 
Um, even in a place like California, which, you know, ostensibly has one of the highest, you know, Mexican populations um, outside of Mexico themselves. So that was an interesting um, shift as well um, in that regard. So you have a book forthcoming uh, on borders, right? And, and border border tunnels. Right. Border practices, border infrastructures, border discourses. Uh, in general, right? Um, and you focus on the US-Mexico border. Mm -hmm. Did you ever consider focusing on the US-Canada border? And how would that be different or similar for you? Yeah. Um... No. For... No, I guess it was. It never became a question of should I do the U.S. Mexican with U.S. Canadian border. Um, I would say for two reasons. So one um, is actually about the history of the project. So um, my dissertation did not necessarily become the book. Um, my dissertation was about the popular imaginary of narco trafficking as seen through a number of different figures that used to like come up in all sorts of media. So not only in fictional media, films, TV, but news reports, games, things like that. Um, and so the dissertation was looking at different kinds of figures like the drug mule, the border tunnel, the narco tunnel, um, the cartel leader, and so forth. And at the end of the dissertation, in like defending and processing, like, okay, now this needs to become a book, um, I think I realized that the part that I was most fascinated with, and especially if I was going to dedicate another five years to, you know, writing about this and processing, it was the tunnels um, chapters um, on that. So then the book became a kind of like um, offshoot of, of the dissertation work. And once I started focusing on border tunnels in particular, um, that very much limits it because there are no border tunnels in the, in the US-Canada border. Um, but also because it became a, a great figure to think about how so many of the contentious issues and discourses around um, what the border is, the US border um, is, and how it's structured are very much contained, not only in the US-Mexico border, but in the land part of the border as well. Um, and thinking about the sort of physicality of the wall as um, as a symbol and this figure that captures so many um, unarticulated sentiments up until recently, more explicitly articulated, but in the past, just um, it just became a symbol that you didn't have to say all the sort of xenophobic rhetoric under it. Um, you could just um, capture all of that with the symbol of the wall. So I think thinking through tunnels, like doing the book, helps me to see how a figure like that opens up to contradictions, opens up to um, different ways of thinking, but also reveals the sort of very central role that media producers have in creating our ideas about the borders, right? Because we tend to think about media as following other groups' depiction of the border, right? They're either like reporting on how politicians talk about the border, um, or they're creating fictional versions of the border, um, or so forth. But in some ways, decisions that are made by media creators, thinking about how this will look the best or how will this present the best in 
the news reporter, the film, or the TV show that they're trying to make end up impacting how we think about the border. But these are not decisions that they themselves can think, um, assume are, you know, latent political decisions about the border. But they are because they have very real effects in how we see that space. Um, so the U.S.-Mexico border as a, as, a, as a ground to think about these issues just became, you know, perfectly evident uh, for my for that for that project the perfect setting to study right decision to inquire into these dynamics so there are a couple of issues that i want to address going back in time you talked a little bit about the foreignness aspect or the international aspect um, of your phd experience but how was in other dimensions um you know, um, what are some, um, you know, highlights of that journey for you? Some uh, do's and don'ts, uh, lessons learned um, that you might want to pass on to, you know, others who will go through that journey. Right. Um, I will say one my PhD experience in general was very positive. Um, it was wonderful, um, very supportive. And I, I realized that it's not a lot of people's experience. Um, and sometimes it's for things that you can't know in advance, right? So um, I think so much of what can impact whether you have a positive or negative experience has to be with, you know, who are the faculty who are there to mentor you. And it doesn't necessarily have to be in terms of, you know, content advising, right? I feel like there are ways to meet other scholars through, you know, conferences or symposium, things like that, who are um, field experts. Um, but I really think like part of the mentoring in terms of, you know, nurturing a sense of curiosity, nurturing, um, you know, work, helping you work through difficult ideas without feeling um, discouraged. That is very helpful. Um, I think I also, because thanks to the, the um, support of my MA mentors, I chose a program that was committed to helping its students as well, right? Institutionally um, and financially supporting students. I think that, that makes a huge difference when everyone is being funded in some way, you don't, you get to bond with your cohort and build a sort of collective sense of, you know, intellectual community that is very different than um, when some are like managing extra jobs to just make ends meet and others are not like that doesn't really build a cohort as well. So I think all of those things are crucial to having a great experience. A lot of them are not as easily discernible before you start, um, which comes with its own issues. In terms of do's and don'ts, like things that actually the grad student can or cannot do. Um, one thing I didn't do early on that I found very, um, very fruitful is to um, move beyond my own, um, let's say more limit, more initial interests um, in a number of ways. So a lot of programs do this, but there'll be like a weekly colloquium where speakers will come in. Um, and it's very common, and I did this too at the beginning of being like, oh, look at the list and um, who is coming. And I'm like, definitely go into the one who's talking about Mexican cinema and then definitely go into this one. And like, I'm not really interested in like historiography or blah, blah, blah. 
this thing because that's not what I do. So I don't need to go to that one. Um, and by the last year, so it was only really as much last year, I realized that's where I learned so much more. Um, because it wasn't just the content that I was learning, right? But it was helpful to think, see how others thought of research questions, how others were designing a project. And even though my project never actually moved in that direction, it helped me to learn about how I explained my own um, research agendas as well. Um, so I think that's one of those things that it becomes, because we think of this PhD as you become an expert in this one small part, it, it breeds a sort of sense of like, well, I don't need to know about these other things, right? Um, and I think the more, you know, um, diverse the kind of sense of um, intellectual um, methods and histories that folks get, even when you're still just defining your own project, not for non-utilitarian sense of like, oh, I need to go and learn this method because I'm going to use it, but actually just learn about it even when I'm not going to use it will be very helpful for then me in the future to explain the relevance of my work to folks who do use that method um, or do think of research questions in that way. So I think very more intellectually curious um, and expansive was, was a key thing. Um, and then even that even sort of tricks trickles into thinking about um, uh, teaching, for example. So um, I was able to be a TA for a number of classes and most of those were assigned, right? They would tell you who, um, which class you have to TA, so you don't really have much of a choice in that sense. But embracing that as less than a chore and more like, again, another like opportunity for exploring, right? Um, I think I one of the my favorite TA experiences were, was for um, history of broadcasting. So mostly it was like early radio, um, of which I do nothing related to early radio, but I just became fascinated by um, all of that research and um, the methods and what folk, the kind of questions that folks were asking. And it is a great, it has become such a great uh, point to keep coming back to in thinking about questions of new media, for example, and uh, regulation of new media and how publics are created or not. Um, so I think being more open to, to that ended up being so, um, so valuable in the end as well. Very good lessons indeed. Now you're wrapping up your PhD program. You are going on the job market for the first time. How was that? It was, um, it was a unique experience. Um, so I don't know, I, since I started um, at UT Dallas a few years ago and then now starting at Penn, um, I do have a lot of people asking me being like, oh, what are the tips or like, how did you do it? Um, I unfortunately do not have any insights on that. Not in the sense of like, I don't know how I did it and this just magically happened. I feel like that's that's an easy way to like disavow responsibility. I do feel I was like, I counted on a lot of like serendipity of things falling in place at the right time for that to happen. Um, in the sense of like when I went in the job market, um, when I was finishing my PhD, um, I was, because I knew I, I could stay for another year um, to finish, to like I could finish right there or I could stay for another year um, and do the job market again. I was very considered about applying to positions that I was like, this is a perfect fit in the sense of like, they're looking for um, someone who does these three things of which I can do at least two, right? Which not a lot of people are, 
um, are in that position, right? They are running out of funding or um, for whatever reason they want, they need to finish. And so they're applying to a variety of things. So it actually made the process a lot less onerous and anxiety inducing. And that I was just like, you know what, how do I just present myself as the perfect person for this thing? Um, and that helped out because I didn't have that pressure um, there. And um, and then I got the job at, at Dallas, which was, um, I also came in at a great moment in that program because um, they just hired a new dean who was sort of building that program out and was interested in, I think I came in with three other people who were hired at the same time. So we had a sort of great cohort of new faculty um, and that really helped in that transition too. It was just like, at first I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I don't, we were all just like, we don't know what we're doing either. So it was great to, you know, work through that. Um, so that really helped too in, in, in shifting from, you know, thinking or being like a grad student and thinking of like, okay, now I'm faculty, what are the different things that I need to be doing uh, and considering myself? So I don't know. I, I always feel like I'm lacking because I'm like, I don't actually know what advice I would give. Um, no, no absolutely. And if, if you had given good advice or at least highlighted important aspects that work for you, and I do not think there is a one-size-fits-all solution, I was more interested in your general experience. Did you enjoy? Because it is in part a unique time um, in the sense that we do not only get a chance, if invited, to present our work, we have a lot of interest from the audience from our work that we normally <laughs> do not have if we go give a regular seminar. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's I've heard this from from um, senior colleagues before, but and so I don't feel like I, I get um, I start to get it a lot more. But it's still like, you know, when you're doing a dissertation, you have a committee who is like committed to reading your things. Right. When you apply for a job, you have a committee who is not committed, but actually, if they're interested, they are very much reading it and in turn, like asking strong questions. I remember in that in that cycle. I also applied to two postdocs um, and one of them had like the final interview and the kinds of questions that I got in that interview were fascinating, like completely changed how I ended up rewriting a chapter just because um, this, this faculty who was a political theorist, but wasn't the committee for the postdoc just had like an entirely new way of thinking about it. That was fascinating. And unfortunately we lose a lot of that structure um, once you made it to the other side, right? One, because everyone is overworked and tired and, and all those things, but two, because we don't have the mass structure in the same way, right? Or because now when we present, if you're not in a structure that you're being evaluated to some extent, right? Like an oral defense or like a job um, talk setting, most of when you're being invited, you're being invited because you're like, people are already expecting that, oh, I, I'd love to hear your great ideas about this thing, you know? Um, and so the perception of that, the questions might just be like, oh, how about this? And how about that? And I'm like, where? What are we have fewer settings where you can have like incisive critique of your work that is constructive at the same time, right? That isn't just like um, antagonistic um, as you move in through different stages of faculty as well. So yeah, I think one of the things that I appreciated a lot was was just how many curious questions I had from um, from so many different faculty members, especially people who didn't do anything related to to my research. Um, and sometimes I was just like, I don't know how to answer this, but I think thinking about how I would is in the future going to be a lot more helpful as well. So 
Absolutely. And um, you you already indicated that you do not mind, you didn't mind going back to the cold a little bit. Um, so you are at the stage where you just finished your uh, first book that, as you said, is not the dissertation book, but it has a genesis in your dissertation mm -hmm. project. Um, what was your experience in this new genre of writing, in a sense, because the dissertation is a text that is written for a committee. Yep. Others might read it, but the committee for sure they will read, and usually not many more people will read the dissertation. But the book will be read by more people, and it is written with that in mind. Mm -hmm. um, what would you say are some of the differences between writing a first book and writing a dissertation, even when there is a connection or a genealogy, but the text is in and of itself different? Yeah. I think, I, I completely agree. I think one of the things that I keep now insisting to um, PhD students is the dissertation is supposed to be your like most boring piece of writing, right? It's supposed to be, just you're like marking off the steps of saying, look, I understand the field. I understand what is at stake in it. I can make this sort of intervention and this is how I can do it, right? Um, but in order to meet all of those, you end up having to make it like very, you know, prosaic in, in specific ways. Um, there are exceptions to this, of course. I was in a dissertation, best dissertation award committee and I read some dissertations that like blew me away in how creative they were. So for sure. But my point is that it doesn't have to be, right? Um, but as part of that sort of boring piece of writing, a dissertation is a lot of how you tell, you do a lot more telling, and then uh, that's not very exciting. So moving into the book, there's a lot more showing. So you have to explain in dissertation why you're an expert in this field by like proving that you've done a literature review, that you've read all the people, that you're able to um, be in conversation with them. And that's still there in the book, but it it can't be that explicit because then no one's going to want to read that, right? Um, once you move into the book, it's writing for an audience that doesn't have to read your writing. So you want to bring them in with what they're going to get out of reading it other than the reading it out of a sense of publication. Um, so that shaped a lot of not only the structure, but also um the elaborating on what the stakes were for for why why this book should exist and why this project should exist at all um and a lot of what i also specifically given my project what i was trying to really articulate and write differently about is to say what can i say why is this a new or an important way of thinking about this thing that we, so many of us think that we already know everything about, right? So I guess to your earlier question about why you focus on the US-Mexico border, one of the issues about focusing with the US-Mexico border is there's so much written about the US-Mexico border already uh, from a variety of different disciplines um, in the popular press and academic press and so forth. So it's it's harder to come in to that and, and explain what, what it is that you're doing. And I think that was a challenge that was um, very helpful to work through um, in the book um, of saying, so one of it was like, oh, I'm focusing on border tunnels specifically, but like, why? You know, just because no one has done it doesn't mean that it is worth doing. Um, that's not enough of a, um, 
of a justification, but rather in thinking through what is this telling us that we haven't when we've only considered border walls, but when we've only considered some other aspects. Um, that, has, that was very helpful in trying to articulate um, and write differently in convincing people you should care about thinking about how we perceive border tunnels. Um, even if you yourself are never going to use a border tunnel, because most of us are never going to. Um, but think knowing how they're being portrayed and how we're perceiving them is important in and of itself. Fascinating. Now, staying with the issue of the border, the US-Mexico border in particular, sort of it joins metaphorically, and at least from some perspective, but not all perspectives, I understand that. Um, the nexus between Latin America and Latinx USA. Mm -hmm. um, as a person who was born and raised in Mexico, lived in Canada, lives in the US, studied in the US, works in the US, and engages with these issues. Um, what do you see as the role of Latin American scholarship and Latinx scholarship in sort of media and communication studies? That's a great question. Um, I think one of the roles, I think one of the key aspects that I found a really helpful um, is that thinking of the difference between the sort of the the national and the transnational um, in that in that regard, for example. So, I found and university bureaucracies or so forth. I've seen it in being on the job market or or whatnot. Will tend to um, conflate those, right? We're looking for someone who is doing Latin American media slash Latinx media, um, and for some people, those are very different um, fields of expertise and and so forth. And yet, they carry a lot of similar political stakes right in the kinds of question the kinds of questions and impacts that that work um will do so i think one of the key aspects is is thinking about those differences um uh, in terms of intellectual trajectory um in terms of like who are the publics that um that are engaging in those fields right um but also the the more uh, nuanced aspects of you know the his, the different histories of the Latinx category in the US specifically right versus other Latin American diasporas in other um English speaking um, countries for example or global north countries generally um so i think the stakes of those fields are are very different in that sense i think one of the things this hasn't coalesced into a book project in any sense but one of the reasons why i keep coming back to thinking about netflix in particular as it has grown in mexico is this idea of the, the identity of the Mexican as a cosmopolitan identity um, rather than a national identity uh, specifically. So what makes a, a Netflix original for Mexico any more Mexican than um, you know, broadcast uh, productions in that sense, right? Um, and that's, I think, a question that speaks to the importance of Latin American media studies um, in particular, but then it's one that is intimately relevant to uh, American studies, right? Or um, to Latinx studies in the US context as well, in terms of how a 
what would be thought of as specifically national identity becomes commodified, becomes distributed, and then becomes um, received in different places around the world as well. Fascinating. Where then do you see future avenues that haven't been pursued so far in, in engaging with these issues, right? About Latin America and Latinx USA that you think might be particularly generative uh, for scholars to consider? New avenues. Well, I mean, I think there's still a lot to be done in different uh, types of media. Um, for example, um, I think there's not enough, but still there's a lot of research in, into thinking about, for example, Latin American cinema, right? Um, and the specific type of Latin American cinema, right? That moves in, in the art scene and film festivals, less on so the more popular versions, but there's that. But, you know, um, television is has more recently become such a, a fruitful area of thinking about. Um, now I'm invested in also uh, bringing in um, games into the question of Latinx and Latin American media studies as well, which others have done too, but I feel like it's still a lot more there um, to, to pursue as well. Um, and thinking about forms of... Um, like transnational forms of media, I think there's still a lot to be um, thought through and uh, researched in terms of sort of South-South um, forms of connection in terms of Latin American media, right? The the impact of not U.S. content or not North, Global North content, but other types of content, how popular that became in a lot of Latin American countries, for example, how and um, folks have pointed to this, but there's still so much more to say about how um, telenovelas and other Latin American uh, media contents become very popular in different parts of the world. Um, all of those things that have been noted, but still need to be a lot more further explored, for sure. Okay. And so this leads us to my last question. If you had magical powers, right? and could be granted one wish about how you would like the field or fields of communication and media studies to change, what would you wish for? It's a great question. Um, I would like to see the field be a little more, um, for lack of a better word, um, medium and method perverse. Um, so be more open to sort of comparative work across different types of media, uh, be um, more mixing of different methods um, to get to sort of particularly naughty or complex questions. Um, I think there's, because there's still so much to be done in, in different areas within the subfield, um, it tends to be that people sort of specialize and focus very, very much in one specific medium, one specific industry. And I think thinking more broadly of connections across um, different media and across different approaches to those medias um, will lead us to um, insights that we have perhaps didn't even think to ask in the first place. Um, I've try to do 
some of that in thinking about some border tones, I think, through different types of media in each chapter, right? But I think bringing those connections even together more is, is something that I think the field in general would be um, a lot more, um, all the better for it in trying to try out those different types of approaches and um, finding different objects to, to, to look to as well. All right. Thank you very much, Juan. This has been a fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much to our audience, our listeners, for staying with us through the end. And I want to invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thanks again, Juan. This has been phenomenal. Thank you for having me. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I'm Pablo Wojcicki, the host, and I'm joined by executive producer Facundo Swenson.